0: I recently watched some of uh, Mark Zuckerberg's keynote address on the metaverse. This is going somewhere. I'm not going to try to sum up the metaverse. You can go do that on your own time. But I'll just say this, Facebook or meta or some people at at least, uh, see a future where People live their lives in much greater, degree, uh, greater degrees online, right, where we have digital selves that we interact with others and we have meetings with and play games with others and go on vacations with others digitally. And I think one of the things that seems so attractive about this, that people surely find attractive about this, is the amount of control that it offers over your life, at least part of your life. You can create or recreate a, a new self, almost like you can like it's like a, you're, you can, like you have a recipe and you have all these ingredients to, to make a meal. You can just kind of pick and choose, well, this is what I want to look like, this is the health that I want to have, this is what I want to be into, this is what I want others to think of me, and this is where I want to go, and you can do all of these things and have much more control. It can almost seem worth forgetting that. Min- the minor detail that it's not real. Well, I wonder how, much of a, how many of us, given the chance to kind of organize and create our life like that, would choose to add the ingredient of trials. Like, and if we, even if we did, like how much of a priority that would be. Like, first thing, I'm going to add trials to my life. Suffering, pain, loss tensions, relational difficulties, inward battles, all of these things, yeah. Throw that in there. That's the good life that I want. Well, that's what Peter is going to say today. In our passage we're going to look like that look at that trials are absolutely necessary to a good life, to a worthwhile and purposeful life. And I begin like this to just show how crazy that idea sounds. Right? We want control over our lives, but we do not want to add trials as part of that engineering of our lives. Now, it's one thing to say that trials are necessary, but it's another to understand why and how. Um, and thankfully, God has not left us in the dark in this. God has not just said, hey, trials are necessary, but I'm not going to tell you what they're, what they're about or what they're doing. Um, obviously, he hasn't told us what he is doing in every instant, in every trial. We don't know that always. But he has given us some big ideas, some things that he is working towards and using our trials for. We know that all things work together for good for God's people. Which means that not a single aspect, not a minute detail or minute of our experience of trials is without purpose, that God is using it for good. So that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, Again, as last week, we're just going to cover a short text. We're going to dive into just two verses today. We'll consider some of the context, but really going to try to mine everything there is in these two verses. So we're in 1 Peter, taking a break from Ecclesiastes. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7 is where we'll... Um, So let me start off, just read the first part of verse 6, in this you rejoice, and you can just leave this up here, Mike, we're just going to be there, in this you rejoice, so obviously we have to go back a little bit in what we rejoice, what are we supposed to be rejoicing in? So if we back up to verse 3, actually you can go back to, or you can go to verse 3 there, Mike, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. God's mercy or compassion is great. We are told that God is rich in mercy, overflowing, abundant in mercy or compassion. Uh, When God first revealed himself, his name, and his character to his people in the Old Testament to Moses, he said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And as these terms suggest, God is like this to those, to to people who don't deserve it. That's that's what mercy and compassion is to those who do not deserve it, to those who are within God's power and right to ignore, even punish. But God chooses and God is merciful. And what has He done according to His great mercy? Uh, Peter goes on, He has caused us to be born again. We were, we are in our sinful nature dead in our sins, dead to God, and God makes us alive. We, we were blind, and God opened our eyes to see the light of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, to see that God in Christ is, is the most lovely and beautiful and worthy one that there is. We were enemies of God, set in willful and active rebellion against him, and he reconciled us to himself and made us his children. We were born again. And how did God do this? Peter goes on, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A few verses earlier, he spoke of Jesus' sprinkling with his blood. And so it is Jesus' work for us, his, his death in our place for our sins, and his resurrection, which proved and confirmed who he was and what he had done, that causes us to be born again. And this is the good news that we must hear and believe in. Uh, Peter will go on in chapter 1 to, to say that this, uh, we are born again through this good news, this living and abiding word of God. As we hear it, This is the the wonder, the mystery of how God saves. As we hear this announcement of what God has done, we are saved. So we cling to it by faith. We're changed. We are made new. But what is this all all leading to? What is this for? Peter is getting to a point here. And so he continues in verse 3, "...born again to a living hope." through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So not only are you reconciled to God now, not only do you have the assurance that God is for you now, that As Psalms 25 says says that all of his works towards you are steadfast love and faithfulness. All of his works towards you are steadfast love and faithfulness. But you also have this living hope of life eternal in his presence, in the fullness of joy and peace. No more temptations to sin. No more tears, pain, toil, weariness. This living hope. We are changed from the inside out in the most fundamental way through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this is all wonderful news, of course, and we could and we do reflect on this every week, especially in what we've been doing lately is reflecting on how this encourages us and strengthens us in our trials. But there's one more thing that Peter is going to say here that we're going to focus on today. God, in his grace and wisdom, gives us something else to help us in our trials. Not only has he given us hope for the future, but he's also given us purpose for the present in our trials. That they are not just things that we have to just get through to get to heaven, to get to Christ. They have purpose in themselves. So, getting into verse 6. In this you rejoice... Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So, he began with joy. In this you rejoice. There is abundant reason to rejoice here and now. But that doesn't mean we don't endure trials that bring great grief. We aren't grieved by various trials. Even in the midst of joy, even as we fight for joy. The word trials can be also be translated tests or even temptations to sin. And so these can be things that come at us from outside of us, tests that come from, from out there, from other people, hardships of living life with other people, hardships of just the world in general. But it can also be trials that come from within us, our own struggles with sin, our own Idolatry and looking to other things to satisfy us and give us what only God is supposed to give us, our struggles with faith, our inward battles, emotionally, psychologically, that we struggle with. All of these things, as we know, grieve us, they distress us, they cause sadness, they make life difficult. We would prefer not to face these things and go through trials, which is completely understandable. Nothing in this or anywhere else in Scripture is saying that our response to be grieved and saddened by trials is wrong. That's understandable. That's natural. We we are to long for the day when trials will be no more, when we will no longer be tempted by sin. But what are we to do here and now? There's more to the story. Trials that bring grief are not the last word. The grief and sadness that we feel about trials is not the last word on our trials. And so, consider two words there in verse 6. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. If necessary. What an astounding thing to say. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Think about it. You will find yourself grieving over trials if necessary. As a beloved child of God, trials will come only if and when they are necessary. Which points to a purpose, right? This means that there is some need for the trial. Despite what we feel or what it may seem, trials and temptations and tests are never random, chaotic, futile, pointless. No, if you belong to God, trials always have a purpose. Which says something about God and his relationship to trials, right? What God is doing. Um, Think about what Peter must believe about God to, to say this almost as an aside, right? It's like... He doesn't just say, you're going to face trials. No, if necessary, he doesn't reflect long on that. He just just kind of comes out, oh, yeah, trials, they're necessary. On the one hand, Peter believes that God is the one who ultimately ordains, brings about trials into our lives. But on the other hand, at the same time, he believes that God is doing something good in and through these trials. He always has a good purpose for them. We know God doesn't delight in our, in our suffering, in our pain. We know God isn't tempting us. God isn't just sitting there just waiting for us to fail and fall into sin. That's not his posture towards us. But if trials are necessary, then there must be something, some end or purpose to them that God does delight in, that he knows is worth it. And Peter says exactly this. Later in the le- later in the letter, in 4:19 he says let those who suffer according to God's will so it's just another way to say the same thing, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So what then is God's will in our trials? What is God about? Why are trials necessary? What end are they getting at? So let's move on in verse 7. So, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, so there's purpose, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, here's the big idea if we were to sum this up. Trials are necessary for testing the genuineness of our faith thus giving us assurance and bringing us to bringing us securely to the last day testing the genuineness of our faith thus giving us assurance and bringing us securely to the last day trials confirm reveal prove the genuineness of our faith they they show that it's not fake that it's not just something we put on when we're around other believers, that we're not deluded ourselves about it. It's not a show. It's not merely talk. It's real. Just as the analogy he uses, gold has its impurities burned off by fire, and so it's made pure and shown to be pure and truly gold. So trials have a similar purifying and revealing nature to our lives and our faith. Part of this is a principle we know very well in life, right? That hardships or pressure tend to reveal who we really are. Uh, we can say we love someone when it's easy and beneficial for us to love them, but it's really shown when things get hard and when there's no benefits in it for us. That's when our claim to love somebody really shows. A sports team can, can think that they're great in the preseason, before they've played any other team. But they're really shown who they are once they get into the season and the grind of games and, and all of that. Tests and trials reveal what is most true and most significant about us. Do we cling to God when things get hard? Do we cling to God when things are easy, which itself can be a trial? if you read the story of the Israelites in the Old Testament. Do we still love God when he doesn't give us what we want? Do we still seek him when he feels distant? We don't see his hand at work. Who are we when we're not able to manufacture an image of ourselves on social media, or even on Sunday mornings for an hour. But who are we in the crucible of trials and suffering? Now, part of the reason we struggle with this, we struggle with trials, and we struggle to have this perspective, is that we don't always value a tested and proven faith as much as we ought to. Oftentimes, I think if we were honest, we would prefer an untested and unproven faith with an easy life over a tested and confirmed faith with all of the trials that come with it. But Peter speaks exactly to this, right? That's why he brings up gold. The tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. So purified gold by fire is of great worth. And if gold isn't something that's on the top of your list to get, what you can get with gold is probably at the top of your list. It's of immense value. It can create a life that, that we all want. But gold and all that it can create doesn't last. It perishes. It has no value in eternity. It has no value in determining our position and standing with God, now or in the future. But a genuine faith in God does. It has value now. It reveals that we are truly gods, that he is with us, that his spirit is in us, that we belong to him, and this increasingly gives us assurance and comfort and strength and peace as we go forward, as we see that we haven't deluded ourselves. God has really worked in us. As others see that and give witness to that and encourage us. And then a genuine faith also reveals that on the last day when Christ comes and every knee bows, that our faith, as Peter says, will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So our faith now, as it's confirmed to be genuine, confirms what will be our position and disposition and emotions on that day when Jesus Christ comes and every knee bows that we will be welcomed into his kingdom and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And all of this, Peter says, is more precious than gold. It is more to be desired or sought after, has greater benefit than anything in this life. Do we we believe that? Do we believe that a tested and confirmed and proven faith is better than an easy, pain-free life, is more precious than a life free of trials? To put it in relational terms, which Scripture leads us to do, do you see Christ as better, as more precious? Do you see Christ and your identity in him as more precious than anything else in life? Do you see it better to gain Christ, if, even if that comes with all sorts of trials and, and hardships and suffering and discomfort? That is better than to lose Christ and have an easy, pain-free, trial-free life. And when you struggle with this, consider that it was worth it. It was more precious. It was better for Christ himself. That Christ himself was willing to endure suffering in order to draw us to himself. Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So Christ, looking beyond the cross, saw the joy of fellowship with us fellowship that is ours even now, and endured what was not his to endure. In our trials and our suffering, we have not reached, we don't suffer injustly as Christ does. And in the midst of our trials, we have his suffering, his grace his goodness, his presence, and his promises to cling to. So we continually look to him. Now, let me draw out a few applications of all of this. First of all, trials don't automatically prove the genuineness of our faith, as if more suffering equal more confirmed faith. In other words, how we respond to trials matters. We have a role and responsibility in how we respond to trials and tests and temptations. We can't be passive. right? This is what Peter was getting at in that verse in 419. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Entrust your souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So we're not righteous because we suffer or because we've had lots of hard or difficult things happen to us or done to us. Uh, We will, no one will get to the, the throne room of God and say, here's my suffering. You must love me. None of us will offer that as payment for our sins. But suffering does offer us the opportunity to prove by our continued faithfulness that God is truly in us, that God has covered us with his blood. We have an opportunity to glorify God. And so one of my regular prayers for all of you, and I would encourage you guys to have the same prayer, is just that God would bear more and more fruit in your life so that you would have greater assurance that you are his And in that, that when trials and suffering come, that you would suffer well. And again, prove that you are his disciples. Second application, this idea of trials being necessary to test the genuineness of faith means that being a Christian is not just a one-time decision or event or experience you know, we might say, well, I grew up in the church, I got baptized, I, I believe I'm a Christian. That may be true enough, but the way you know you are a Christian, the way you have assurance is not because of something you did in the past, not some experience you had or raised your hand at, a, at an event in and of itself. That could be the moment that Christ really captured your heart, but the way you know that that's true is the fruit of faithfulness and godliness over time. The fruit doesn't save you. It can't save us, but it does confirm the genuineness. The, it does act to test and confirm the realness of your salvation. I'm not sure how to tie that into the sermons. So I'll <laughs> just keep going. And third and last... In this lifelong process of being grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of our faith is proved, I would just have you consider that the church plays a vital role. The being in community with other believers plays a vital role in this. If we endure trials on our own, detached and distant from the body of Christ, we A, lose a major source of encouragement and strength that God intends for us. B, we remove ourselves from the very context where much of the fruit is going to be displayed. So much of the fruit of what God is doing in our lives involves other people. But C, we also lose the witness and the encouragement of others in recognizing and confirming and affirming God's work in our life. I've kind of hinted at it already, but we should be humbled and warned by our own ability to delude ourselves, to perhaps on the one hand to always paint ourselves in the best light and to think that we have no need to grow, have no sin to to fight against, have no areas of weakness. Or or perhaps we often, our tendencies go the other way and we, we only see ourselves in the worst light. We cannot see what God is doing. We struggle to think that God is active in us at all. In either case, we need the, win- the witness and the insight and the encouragement and the words of other believers who truly know us. Not who just see our Sunday kind of best selves, but who truly know us. Part of what it means to belong to a church is to... Affirm and and oversee to some degree the faith of others. Not that anyone else has the final say on your faith. Actually, not that you yourself have the final say on your faith. We should be humbled by both of those. But we are called to recognize and affirm those who appear to be truly born again and have confessed faith in Jesus and to, to commit to them, at least a group of them, to encourage them, to love them, to live with them, to desire to see them continue to bear fruit, if the occasion comes to, to warn them, to be willing to receive all of this ourselves. And we do all of this because of the test, because the tested genuineness of our faith is worth more than gold. Right? If that is the case, if that is worth that much, then living and and attempting to live out our faith on our own solely with our own judgment should scare us. It's part of why we gather weekly as a church. It's why we take communion together. It's why we sing, confess, submit to God's word. It's why we practice membership here and talk about what it means. And don't just assume we know what it means to belong to Christ and one another. Our prayer is that through this, as our various journeys and stories come together, that God is bearing fruit among us, encouraging us, and giving witness to his work to those who are watching. Let's pray.